Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody at the tail end of this Thanksgiving weekend as it also serves as a starting point, as you see and hear as our, of our Advent season. And so let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. You can find that on page 807 of a blue pew Bible. And I'm looking forward to, as we kick off this Advent season together, and kids, you are with us, obviously, in the service this morning, uh, the kindergartners through fifth grade. And so um, I know you guys have had a little bit of a head start on us in terms of Advent season. You've been practicing your Christmas songs that you'll be singing uh, with us in here on December 19th, and we're very much looking forward to that. And uh, Miss Megan, because uh, she is amazing, uh, gave a worksheets for you to have in the service. If you did not get one, I'm sure we have a, uh, them at Grace Connect where you can follow along in the whole service and in this sermon and maybe listen for some things you can circle or um, write down on that sheet. Uh, I'm sorry, adults, you, you, you're on your own for, for taking notes this morning, but, but your kids got a little bit of a leg up if you want to peek onto their pages as well. Um, but as we start this season, I always kind of wa- want to ask the question, uh, what is Advent? Because there is a spectrum uh, on one hand uh, of maybe those in here who very much know its purpose, you know its meaning, you know its history, and you are kind of in, uh, anticipating Advent and just excited for it. And then on the other end of the spectrum, there's maybe uh, also those who, who might kind of vaguely know Advent is associated with Christmas. Uh, If you were to ask me, even into young adulthood, I would tell you Advent is a synonym for Christmas, Uh, and I don't know why beyond we kind of, what really the purpose behind it might uh, be in its entirety, Uh, but to get us all on the same page this morning, uh, Advent comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means the coming or the arrival, and so the church celebrates a season of Advent, which marks the beginning of the kind of liturgical church calendar every year with the four Sundays before Christmas Day. And it's a season of waiting. It's a season of anticipation for the arrival of a coming king. And you can go back in church history that the earliest notions of the church kind of celebrating a season of Advent starts in the 5th century. So it could have even started before that, but that's when we kind of start to see in some of the literature uh, that the church kind of collectively celebrate in this season. And its intent, at its core, has been for the church to, you ready for this, collectively slow down. To slow down and identify with the reality of God's people living in anticipation of the arrival of the Christ. And it's a season that we're kind of in a bizarre place kind of in our country, in our time of history, and that we not only as a church and God's people celebrate Advent, but we're in the midst of a culture that very much buys into this season, both literally and figuratively, to the point where as we kind of get deeper into November and you approach Thanksgiving, there's a lot that we have come to expect about this season. There's a lot that in the church and culturally that we've come to expect. We expect that retail stores will be wall-to-wall decked out with holiday decorations, that you walk in and it's red and it's green and it's white as far as the eye can see. We expect to hear Christmas music everywhere we go, both secular and religious. 
We expect parties at work and school and church, and then we expect time with family. And, and for some of those, uh, we are like very much looking forward to them and enjoying those and excited for it. For others, or maybe certain aspects of it, if we're honest, it's kind of miserable. There's good food and fellowship on one hand. There's those awkward conversations with your coworker that you have to have every year. There's that one cousin who can't read the room in the family party. There, maybe you're that cousin. I mean, you just, I don't know. But there's the reality that there's kind of certain parts of this that we expect and we love, and there's other parts that we expect and we just want to get through. You heard in our announcements, our church has kind of a, a litany just of events that we like to have and fellowship together as a church for all different groups and ages. For music fans and musical fans, you had the Macy's Day Parade, and then on Thanksgiving, and then the Rockettes leading up to Christmas. For sports fans, you got football on Thanksgiving, you got basketball on Christmas Day. We're all expecting to get a barrage of Christmas letters and pictures in the mail. We expect to exchange gifts on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. And not to mention all the maybe unique family traditions that you have this time of year. Again, many of which you enjoy, some of which maybe you roll your eyes at, but either way, we've come to expect it. But if we're going to Advent well this season as a church, I think it is important that we understand just how unexpected that first Christmas was how unexpected it was. And so over the course of Advent and our four Sundays and leading up to Christmas Eve, we're going to look at various unexpected aspects of that first Christmas with various passages in the book of Matthew, starting this morning with Matthew 1, verse 1 to 17. All right, we're going to read this all up front. Um, I'm going to ask you, I don't always do this, but it's Thanksgiving, you ate a lot, you've been sitting around a lot. Let's stand as I read this, get the blood flowing this morning. You can follow along again in the Bible or up on the screen. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. And Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron. And Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab. And Aminadab the father of Nashon. And Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. And Manasseh, the father of Amos. And Amos, the father of Josiah. And Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Verse 12, and after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotel, and Sheotel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Elikayim, and Elikayim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, 
and Eliezer the father of Mathen, and Mathen the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. You may have a seat. Matthew's genealogy is expansive. There's a lot of names. But it was not comprehensive, meaning that Matthew did not share the entire family line from Abraham to Jesus. That covers a span of about 2,000 years of history, starting in approximately 2,000 B.C., But he chooses to break the genealogy into three groups of 14, as he explained, 14 generations from Abraham to King David, 14 from King David to the time of exile, which we know well about, just preaching through Ezra, and then 14 generations from the exile to the birth of Jesus. So so most commentators agree that Matthew is, is doing something here. He's artistically and yet truthfully proclaiming something in the way that he chose to record the genealogy through the number 14. Some of you may know that Hebrews, uh, that the language of ancient Hebrew has a system of assigning numerical values to the Hebrew alphabet. And when you add up the numerical values of the Hebrew consonants in King David's name, you get a total of 14. In addition, David's name in this list is number 14 on the list. So Matthew is clearly communicating something even in his literary devices, connecting Jesus to the royal lineage of King David right from the outset he is writing too. But even so, uh, the, the, the people who were originally getting this letter um, from Matthew Um, would realize, would not treat it the way that we often treat it, and that this passage for us, let's be honest, it's probably the most overlooked passage in the birth birth narrative of Matthew. It's the kind of passage that we kind of skip over in order to get to the good stuff, the good Christmas stuff. And I need to admit, I've preached now, this is my sixth Advent season, or maybe my seventh, so that is over 30 sermons committed to Advent. And I have never once been even tempted (laughs) to preach on the genealogy. After all, didn't we just stand and listen to a whole bunch of names? What impact does that have on your life? Well, Matthew, who again was writing to a primarily Jewish Christian audience in the city of Rome, knows that by laying out that genealogy, it would open some eyes. Not only because of some of the unexpected names in there, but even the expected names had very unexpected aspects of their stories. So here's how I want to kind of approach this passage. I I, I want to kind of pluck out a few of those names and talk about them, why they're unexpected, and then I want to answer the question, what does this genealogy have to do with us today? And and so kids, if you're listening again, following along on your sheet, you're going to recognize some of these names because I know you're going through the book of Genesis downstairs So some of these names you've already heard, and then, spoiler alert, a couple of these names you're about to cover in the coming weeks, a source told me, okay? So a a list of kind of unexpected ancestors here, starting with, number one, an unexpected father. 
An unexpected father, and father in quotation notes, if uh, many people know that kind of Abraham gets considered to be Father Abraham, there's a song that goes with that that I will not sing uh, for you right now, uh, but he's kind of the father of the nation of Israel because he is the one whom God approached in Genesis chapter, tw- chapter 12 and told him, his name was Abram at the time, that it would be through his family line that a great nation would come. And not only that, but all the nations of the earth would be blessed through that family line. That's a heck of a promise. It's unexpected because before God told Abraham this, we knew one thing about him. If you were to turn in your Bible, and you don't have to now, but the end of Genesis 11, there's another genealogy account, and then we start to hear about Abraham's father and his family and his brothers. And we're told one thing about Abram in Genesis 11. That he was married to a woman named Sarah. And the one thing we're told is that Sarah was barren. Sarah was unable to have children. All his brothers, children, wives, Abraham and Sarah, no children. And yet, Abram is the one whom God said, the whole world is going to be blessed by your line. He would be an unexpected father not only to his son, but to an entire nation. Keep going. Next in that list, there's an unexpected brother. An unexpected brother, and his name is Judah. Again, kids, remember that name. You might come across it in the next couple of weeks because Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And this was one of the most dysfunctional families you could ever imagine. Those of you around this time of year, you realize the dysfunction that maybe is present in your family. It kind of comes out a lot at Thanksgiving and Christmas. Your family's dysfunction had nothing on the dysfunction of this family. There was such hatred and jealousy amongst the brothers, especially towards the second youngest, a man named Joseph, because he was their dad's favorite. So Judah... Judah is the one who develops a plan and convinces his brothers to sell Joseph off into slavery and then stage a fake death to tell their dad that he was eaten by a wild animal. And the plan worked. And it would not be until 40 years later that that lie would be exposed and brought to light. And Judah would be transformed from the inside out, not by the wrath of his brother Joseph, but by his kindness and forgiveness towards him. And after their reconciliation and their whole family is now united in Egypt, their dad Jacob gives these blessings in Genesis 49 to all 12 brothers before he passes away. And unexpectedly, Judah would be the one that is told that it will be through his family line that this would continue, that his blood would be royal blood. It's an unexpected brother. Keep going. Next, there are unexpected women in this list. In the first set of 14 names, three women are listed which in and of itself would have been unexpected to those in the first century who were reading Matthew's account because in ancient genealogies, women were never mentioned. Even you go through Genesis genealogies, you even go through the Gospel of Luke's genealogy, and Luke is the one, the Gospel that uplifts and kind of shows 
uh, the impact that women had in Jesus' ministry more than anyone else. And even he does not list women's names in his genealogy, but Matthew does. Genealogies were always recorded in line of the father. It was a male-dominated patriarchal society. But Matthew goes out of his way to mention women. In part because as Jesus' disciple, Matthew saw firsthand the transformative and countercultural way Jesus included, Jesus uplifted, and Jesus affirmed women in his ministry, which the early church would be carrying forward. But it's not just the unexpected point that Matthew included women, it's the actual women he included. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth. Tamar's story is told in Genesis 38. Genesis 38 is not in any children's Bible you will ever find. Tamar was cast aside and abandoned by her brothers-in-law and her father-in-law, Judah, after her husband passed away. And she was basically cast out, uh, left essentially for dead or just have no power, no land, no uh, ability. So she disguised herself as a prostitute and was made pregnant by Judah, her father-in-law, unbeknownst to him. And so when he found out that his daughter-in-law was now pregnant, he ordered for her to be burned until she exposed him as the father of the child she was carrying. So he relented and It was through those children whom the family line to the Savior proceeded. It's unexpected. Rahab, also a prostitute, and even more unexpected, she was not even Jewish. She was not even in the God's people. She was a Canaanite who were were at war with Israel, and her family were the only survivors of Israel's conquest of the city of Jericho because she hid the Jewish spies and helped them escape and join the people of God. She married a man who then became part of King David's ancestry. And then Ruth, the third woman mentioned, and the second of which who herself was not even Jewish. Her people were Moabites, who if you go back and traced their uh, beginning in the book of Genesis. You know how the Moabite nation began? It was through an act of incest between Lot and his oldest daughter. And through personal tragedy of losing her husband, Ruth's loyalty to her mother-in-law at cost of her own freedom and power ends back up in Bethlehem and marries then a Jewish man named Boaz, and she becomes David's great-grandmother. These are unexpected women. Let's keep going. Then you find an unexpected king, and it would be King David, who would become Israel's, uh, in a sense, most famous king, the king after God's own heart, the word says, and he had a very unexpected beginning and ascent into the throne. David was the youngest of eight sons to Jesse, and the only thing we knew about David before God chose him is that he was the smallest, he was the weakest, he was the least impressive of his brothers by worldly standards. Does that sound familiar? Echoes of Abraham here, and yet he was the one God chose to raise up, to unexpectedly defeat Goliath, to unexpectedly rise to the throne from from being Saul's kind of harp player, and then be the king that expands Israel's geographic reach. 
and also unexpected, which is referred to and implied here in the genealogy with the wife of Uriah, Matthew writes, that for all of David's strengths, he was also a broken, sinful man. He would use his power to be intimate with Bathsheba to give birth to a son, and then upon finding her pregnant, decided to orchestrate her husband's death in battle so he could tell people it was Uriah's son, not his own, until, like Judah, he would be exposed and repent. But he's an unexpected king in the family line. And then the last one we'll talk about this morning, there's an unexpected child. Verse 10, you see a name, Josiah. Josiah would rule in the family line as king over Israel. So what was unexpected about Josiah? He was eight years old when he took the throne. Raise of hands, the kids in here. How many of you are either seven, eight, or nine years old? If you're one of those two, just raise them high. Seven, eight, or nine years old. All right, I'm going to do something I might regret. Stand on your pew if you're seven, eight, or nine years old right now. Get up, stand up on your pew. Choose one of these children (laughs) to be your king. All right, kids, you can sit down. Can you imagine? Here's the thing about Josiah. His father was one of the most wicked kings Israel had, debased, sinful. And so this child king, all he sees in his formative years is his father who is a knucklehead. Saw only wickedness. How would you expect that to work out? Well, he reigned for 31 years. He proved to be the most faithful king Israel had, surpassing even the faithfulness of his ancestor, King David. Unexpected. And I wish we could go on and on and talk about every name on this list from what we know about them, but let us at least see this. The original hearers of Matthew's gospel, who would hear about the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Christ that they've been waiting for, would hear this beginning, this start of the account, and it would hit home with them. Jesus had unexpected ancestors. And so now I want to briefly offer four reasons why Matthew's unexpected genealogy matters for us today as we now prepare to set up uh, upon another Advent season. Four reasons why this matters for us today. Number one, God knows our names. God knows our names. Uh, When we say, when I often say from this pulpit that God providentially rules over all of human history, We often, and sometimes doing that, or I often, will sometimes miss the fact that that macro rule over all of history includes the micro knowledge of every single person and their story. I'll have a quote on the screen from author Jen Wilkin. She writes this, in the genealogies, God speaks to us of his attention to the individual. He sees us not as a teeming mass of humanity, but as individual names and faces and personalities, each with their own stories that play into the larger story of redemption. God knows our names, and he knows the names of everyone in our family tree going all the way back to the beginning, and for each person, that's a big tree. 
Consider this fact. I saw this, uh, th- this kind of, uh, I guess, image on, on social media a couple weeks ago. Uh, so consider this with me because I think it's relevant. And I'll have this on the screen. In order for you to be born, in order for you to be born, every person needs two parents, four, grand- four grandparents, eight great-grandparents, 16 great-great-grandparents, 32 third-great-grandparents, 64 fourth-great-grandparents, 128 fifth-great-grandparents, 256 sixth-great-grandparents, 512 eighth-great-grandparents, 1,024 ninth-great-grandparents, couple typos in there, 2,048 ninth-great-grandparents. Here's the point. For you to be born today, from 12 previous generations, you needed a total of 4,094 ancestors over the last 400 years. And in our day, there has been a little bit of a resurgence of interest in our ancestry. Uh, the company Ancestry.com, which was founded in 1996, just at the beginning of the rise of the internet, today earns more than $1 billion in annual revenue with customers across 30 countries. Each person you see around you this morning, those sitting next to you, those sitting in front of you, those sitting behind you, everybody you see has 4,000 names behind them just over the last 400 years for them even to exist. And God knows the name and story of each and every one of them. And he knows the names of everyone in Jesus' ancestry going back 2,000 years to Abraham. And again, with each name, there's a story. And their story fits into his story. For he knows our names. And he desires that we know him personally. We talk about this a lot. I don't mean that you know about him. It's easy to know about Jesus, know about Christmas, know about this the story of Christmas, my question for you is always, do you know him? Do you know that his desire for you in knowing you is to know him personally and how that transforms our lives? Do you know that that's the way God designed you? It's the first thing we need to see and notice. Number two, the father orchestrated the arrival of the son. The Father orchestrated the arrival of the Son. So what makes God, God? What makes God, God is not just that he knows our names and all of those who came before us. It's not just that he knows the name of Jesus and all the names that led to Jesus. But he sovereignly orchestrated every little detail about their lives that would lead to the arrival and birth of his eternal Son, Jesus Christ. This does not mean that those people are robots or that we are robots. It does not mean that we do not make decisions for ourselves. They do and we do. But the Bible holds these two truths together. Hang with me. That mankind has a freedom of choice and they are held responsible for the choices they make. The Bible is clear on that. And the Bible is clear that God sovereignly ordains all that happens to bring about his perfect will. And one truth does not negate the other. Think about the 4,094 ancestors of Jesus, including the names listed in Matthew 1. Think about how every decision that was made by every one of those people and how if even one decision was different along the way, 
how it, the fact that it would not have led to the birth of Jesus. Let me give you one quick example from my ancestry. Um, so um, our son, Caden, first grade, um, had to bring in an artifact to school this past week that tells the story of his family history. Kids, maybe you've done this in your school too. One thing that you had to share that tells a story about your family history. Uh, so Caden brought in a book that we each have in our family, which is basically a newly published version of a pamphlet that my great-grandfather, Caden's great-great-grandfather, um, brought, uh, put out to promote his dairy farm in 1930. At the time, he owned and operate, operated the largest dairy farm in the state of New Hampshire. This is an aside, but my favorite line from that pamphlet that they gave to their customers was this, if your milk is sour, tell us. If your milk is sweet, tell your neighbors. Just brilliant marketing strategy. Uh, you can apply that to your own life and just free, feel free to use it. All right? That's a gift from my family to yours. Um, but business was booming. This was actually during the Great Depression that their dairy farm had grown and was bursting at the seams, adding cows, biggest dairy farm in New Hampshire. And my great-grandfather had five sons, one of which was my grandfather, John Barney. And John Barney had figured that he was set up for a life of dairy farming in his teen years, preparing to kind of take over ownership along with his brothers, this dairy farm that was growing. That dairy farm in the late 1930s had a fire, and the fire destroyed the entire farm, and the business never recovered. So my grandfather changed paths, and he went to school for missions where he met my grandmother. And they would be married and serve as lifelong missionaries in the country of Kenya. Here's my question. Whatever caused that fire on that fateful day, what if it didn't happen? What if there was no fire? He likely would have stayed in the family dairy business. He likely would have never went to mission school. He likely would have never met my grandma. And I'm not here right now. Somebody else is preaching to you at Grace Church. <laughs> that is one example of one day in one person's life in my ancestral line. How many moments like that exist in a family line of 4,000 people? For all we know that has happened in our families and for the millions and millions of things that we will never know and the millions of things that we do not know that happened in Jesus' ancestral line that led to his birth, the one thing we do know is that God the Father sovereignly knew and orchestrated all of it. And in that truth, we can rest that nothing happens outside of his will. And that does help us today, in all seriousness, when we don't even know what's happening or why it's happening in our lives right now. When we question the hard things in the world, that we see and notice, that we experience, when we don't understand how could this ever be good, how could a fire that destroys a family business ever be good, how could it ever be good that a marriage falls apart, how could it ever be good that a child dies, how could it ever be good that somebody's barren in their womb? We can ask those questions, and yet we can have full confidence in the God who stands above it all. He's never the author of evil, but he is always sovereign over 
it. And so we do lament dysfunction in our families when we see it and we experience it. And we don't want to minimize the pain that we feel and how real that pain is. But we can lament that while at the same time trust that no suffering is ever wasted. God wastes none of it. And it's in Genesis 50, that story of Joseph forgiving his brother Judah, that he says a famous line in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. All right, two more. Number three. This genealogy matters for us today because it tells us that Jesus Christ came from and for imperfect people. Jesus came from and for imperfect people. We know this by now as we look at those names in Matthew 1, and whenever your eyes come across this passage in the future, let it be a trigger for you to not just skip over it, to not say this doesn't matter, let me get to the good stuff. Let it be a reminder in your ears and in your mind and your heart that Jesus Christ's birth came from a line of imperfect people. And not only that, but let it be a reminder of God's grace that he came for imperfect people. When the angel appeared to Joseph, a passage that we'll see next week, the angel uh, said about his wife Mary, that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus came not for those who were all put together, but for those who were falling apart. Jesus came not for those who were whole, but for those who were broken. Jesus came in his own words, not for the healthy, but for the sick. The message of Jesus Christ does not say, come all those who are awesome, and I'll give you a reward, but rather come all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I wonder if some of you here, some of you watching, struggle against the narrative that in the Advent season, especially this time of year, we're supposed to show up to church and just put our smiles on, and we love this season, and everything's okay. And that's how we're supposed to kind of put ourselves off and everybody else around us. This looks really okay and nice and they're smiling and that's just how you're supposed to act in church. I wonder if some of you struggle against that narrative rather than saying that when you're not okay, this is the place you want to be. When you're not okay and you need to admit and you're broken that this is the community you want to do it with. When you're in need of rest, this is the Savior to come to. Jesus did not come to be our cheerleader. He came to be our Savior. And if you feel that your story that you're coming from or from your family history, the story that you're currently living in, that you feel like it's full of brokenness and it's full of shame and failure and hurt, you just need to know that you're not alone in that. And that out of his deep love for you, that's the reason he came. He came from an imperfect people for imperfect people. Morgan Campbell wrote in his 1907 commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, quote, In this genealogy, consciously and unconsciously, there are signs of the grace which is being brought to all men through the coming King. Last one. 
We see the Father's purposes, the Son's purposes. Now, the Holy Spirit works through imperfect people. So Jesus Christ came for imperfect people, and now the Holy Spirit works through imperfect people. Speaking of unexpected, (laughs) speaking of unexpected, perhaps the most unexpected thing of all about Advent is that once we are adopted into his family line by faith, once Jesus' ancestry becomes our ancestry, the Spirit indwells us and then works through us to join in his mission to bring heaven to earth. Advent is a reminder that God wants to do unexpected things through unexpecting people. Church, do you believe deep down in your soul that God wants to do the unexpected through you? Perhaps he is waiting on you to trust in him to take the next step, even and especially when you don't know what that step is going to mean. Kind of like Abraham didn't know when God told him to go to Canaan. Kind of like Rahab didn't know when God told her to help keep the spies hidden. Kind of like David didn't know when God called him up to fight Goliath. Kind of like Josiah didn't know when God made him king at the age of eight. But they trusted God to take the next step. Church, when Matthew sat down and wrote this genealogy, the time from Abraham to Jesus was 2,000 years. And where we stand in history, it has been 2,000 years from the moment Jesus was born to today. And God is still taking names. And God is still orchestrating all things. And God is still working through imperfect people to reach imperfect people with his perfect purposes. And by faith, your name is written in the book of life. You're on the list. By faith, in all your imperfections, the Savior is born. And if you have not placed your faith and trust in him, I don't think it's an understatement to say that your whole life and the life of your ancestry has led you to this moment. We're in a moment of believing in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, to restore you to himself, to then place you on mission, that you will alter the legacy of your life and those who will come far after you in your family line. Let's pray. Father, we are humbled at the expansiveness of your sovereign and providential control, and we are humbled by your micro-knowledge of every single name in this room, every single name in this church, every single name in this world, that you know us all that you've made a way for us to know you. Father, allow us as we again stand at the edge of another Advent season that so easily passes us by without us even blinking. Lord, give us the grace to slow our own minds and hearts down, to consider what you have done in sending your son to inbreak into human history, to take on flesh, to do the things we could not do so that you could pay the price that we deserve on the cross. Lord, we pray that that transformative news, transforming news, would fall afresh on us this morning. And let it be all for your glory. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing a song now. I'm going to have you stay seated for this song. There's a popular Christmas song called Come 
Oh, come all you faithful. Just butcher that. Oh, come all ye faithful. This song is called, Oh, come all ye unfaithful. About how God calls all the broken to himself, for he's the one who restores. So allow this prayer to just, or this song to be a prayer for you. You can sing along as well as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper.